is Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country. And we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers, John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home. And Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. 
The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues, here on Our American Stories.
this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep, like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping, um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at how, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. 
And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Yeah, hot. You fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but, yep. uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Cause this I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're, you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their, um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over and then you jerk up. Okay. So this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. It, you're just like falling and r- rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. Right. There's some, some like guilt, uh, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is gonna, it's gonna, it's not gonna do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's, of course, when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap we're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion? Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is so, so what's the best way, the, the very best way to take a nap? So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan. And even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in and so they're probably not getting quality sleep um, and so are a little bit in a zone all the time um, but so you want to be in a obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the 60s um, you know ideally you want to be you want to be prone because when you're laying down um, your body can the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up and you want to be in a dark that you know no one's watching you so you feel safe so a glassy office is not a great place it used to be that um like seeing a madman or whatever and you know you could just close the door lay down on your couch take a 15 minute nap and no just say you know don't interrupt me for 15 minutes and it was totally fine that's kind of looked upon as lazy now and it's not that way in all cultures you know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish-speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid-afternoon nap is good um, is that places like um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade um, they forbade the nap, and the productivity didn't go up. So there's there's this they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon, and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm, and it just opens up and and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office 
where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen Yes, those? I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. And they're, they're like in 15-minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do 15 minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Dr. Dingy said. He said, quote, being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add, he says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Dingy's, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a yeah, whole book on this. He wrote a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print, but he's written other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges, um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I my right hand man back. Get your right hand man back. You know you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put some bump to the land, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the Founding Fathers? 
Guns, or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit, given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead, white, founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous, specifically... He called himself, quote-unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then one year earlier came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. At the beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion, and had to be 
taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives, 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one-third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Because there were people in Alabama, many white people, who supported the cause of desegregation. And they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. 
And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. There are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fastball. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm-hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. Shot. So it's a fabrication of the movies. How, huh? how, did, how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what, they, what the movies have created, and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. 
Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. Nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no, what are you talking about? I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. And you reach nearly 10 G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of 9 Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw, cock, fire, and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. I'll, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you've got to cock it, bang, cock it, aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yep. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So... You know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her, and I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. 
After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years. And we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon. And we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old. And uh, we put them in the back with their toys. And we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know. And then uh, we were in the front. And we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error and changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started asking me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests 
Use single action revolvers to complete the 70 shot salute, one for every year of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. American stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and, and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We, were, um, we met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So 
we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York, and um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair? which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, he said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we, I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway and um, kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again, and... Um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina, at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and and, um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, The second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then um, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along, and and then uh, five years later, his little sister Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no. To tell, <laughs> tell us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so, you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know and spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and... Um, embarrassing time, you know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and 
and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when Um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When we come back, more with Amy Wright, and that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a, a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country... Uh, the chances of a, of a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Amy Wright, and we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace, and so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You you find out these the, these these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first, and also your family and friends. Talk about the the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family, and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't. We just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year, we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to, to talk about that and to you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just because he was their brother. And it it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome. Um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born, and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um, 
condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have, as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just, it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together. And very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching Watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm I'm fascinated. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order, somebody else will make the beverages, somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine and uh You know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team, Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country, some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're, they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, like heroes. And, uh, you know, the people recognize them, they come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a, a drive-through, and I found that yeah. fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole 
motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we, we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me uh, if you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and we're sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome, too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see, I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you, you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth, not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility. I mean, that had to have been life changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that you know we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but you know the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is that He doesn't make mistakes. And, and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional. And, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more. You know, it's just we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and, um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories, and if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. 
and what a message of love, what a story, and it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now we're about to bring you the first part of a multi-part series, Better Health at Lower Costs, brought to us by our friends at the Stetson Family Office. And this story features my journey, my own personal journey, to better health. It's one of those conversations you have with your kids, and it was one I had with my little girl, little girl Reagan. She was sitting around a table one day, we were eating together, and she started talking about the future, her future. And uh, she was telling me, Daddy, you know, when I'm graduated from vet school, it's going to be 2030. And, you know, I want you and Mom to to move near where I'm going to be because I'm going to have a vet practice somewhere in southern Florida because, well, that's where vets make the most money. I Googled it, and they make a good living there. And, And it was just the great clarity. I mean, it was just she knew where she wanted to go, and I heard the number 2030. And heck, I was thinking, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be in my early 70s. Then am I gonna, am I gonna be around? Am I gonna be healthy? What, what am I gonna be like? And it was the first time I really thought about my own mortality. First time, a little conversation with my kid. We've all been there. If we're in our 50s, we're in our 60s. We're turning that corner. The other half, the second half, and not in a morose way, not in a sad way, just in a, oh my goodness. It's it's past halftime, and can I keep doing the things I'm doing? And I'm, well, I think I'm like a lot of guys. Don't go to the doctor, avoid it, eat whatever I want. Think I'm the picture of health, but I knew deep down inside that some things had to change. And I had this friend, and he had been well, he'd been working on me, telling me about this doctor named Ken Cooper, and how Ken Cooper had saved his life, how he'd extended his life, and. And well, I looked into it, and well, it, it was true. I knew it was true, but well, I did what most guys do. It didn't apply to me right now, and so I just, I just put it off. I just kept, well, putting it off and putting it off. I ended up putting it off over a year, as guys are wont to do, and and pro- probably some ladies too. Though I think men do this more, as it relates to procrastinating on their health. And statistics bear that out. Women, because of so many of the things they have to do on an annual basis, they do. Men, we just think, we're just avoiders in these matters, I think. Well, I am. One of the biggest problems I had, I knew it because I, you know, once you're starting to do one of these things, you just start reading and you start searching. And one of the biggest problems I knew I had was that I just sat around too much. My idea of activity is to, well, get me a bowl of ice cream, sit down with my wife and well, binge watch something on Netflix. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. One of my favorite things to do with my family is watch TV. We're not one of those big experience families where we bungee jump and we jump off stuff and fly off stuff. That's for some folks. That's not my family. Um, We love to gather around and play cards together, eat together, watch TV together. The simple things, the simple things in life are what we love. Um, But it turns out sitting around is really bad for you. In fact, it's more dangerous, some studies say, than smoking. And I sit around all day long. So that had to change, too. This sedentary life I knew was about to come to an end. Ultimately, I just, it, it, hit, a, it hit a moment. I'm climbing upstairs 
on the Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. We're here in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, and it's the home of Ole Miss. I'm taking my little girl to a football game, and we want to climb all the way to the top to get a great picture, me and her, looking over the Mississippi State Ole Miss game. And as I'm climbing the stairs and I get to the top, I'm completely out of breath. I mean, completely out of breath. And it was embarrassing. I mean, I had a hard time making it up a super high flight of stairs. And I'm one who had always been in shape all my life until I wasn't. And it had just crept on me, 5 pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, 25 pounds, and ultimately 30 pounds heavier than my game weight back when I used to play a lot of basketball and run around and just felt a lot lighter on my feet. And so I just put the call into the Cooper Clinic and I said, enough is enough. This Cooper Clinic, boy, they do it all. They have this really super tough stress test. They check everything. They check your arteries. They check scans for cancer. You name it and you're going to go through it. And the typical exam is just, it's a full day. But in my case, I came in early to meet with the team and to meet with Dr. Cooper personally regarding how I was going to proceed and if he'd mind if I recorded all of this. I mean, some people might not have wanted that to happen. And he was he was just so open to it. He was absolutely, why would, you know, yes, <laughs> let's do that. And Ken Cooper is like the founder of modern day aerobics and fitness. And we're going to talk more about Ken Cooper in this journey. I'm rarely the subject of stories here. This is not that kind of show. But this is the one time I am because there was no one else to tell this story of health and fitness and wellness in this country. I'm not exactly a wellness guy. I, I love eating meat. I love eating, well, whatever's inside the aisles at the supermarket. I avoid the outside aisles, and I go right to the inside aisles. All my favorite stuff is there. All my favorite candy, all my favorite cookies, all my favorite cake mixes. I just love food, and it's a love affair eating for me. It's not a disease. It's not a struggle. I, I do it because it's just enjoyable. I'm half Italian and half Lebanese, and we're eating people. It's what we do. We gather around big tables. We have big living rooms. We have gardens. We cook. We eat. We laugh. We cook. We eat. We laugh. And that's that's life for me, cooking and eating. And I knew that was going to have to end, at least parts of it. And it was going to have to be done differently for the sake of my little girl uh, and for no other reason. Um, because in the end, though, I was exhausted climbing up those stairs. If I didn't have a little girl, I just think I wouldn't have cared. I just would have said, oh, you know, I'm not climbing upstairs anymore. I'll get me one of those chairs. It'll lift me up to the top of the stairs. So wherever you are in this chain, uh, in this space, uh, this is where I was, and this was my life. And so this was the starting point for my new life, was getting on a plane and heading off to Dallas to, to see this very, very famous man. And, and Dr. Cooper, the more I read about him, uh, the more I knew he was the guy to get me to to change. We all need a coach in our life, a mentor in our life, someone to change for, someone to be accountable to. And this guy founded Modern Aerobics and Fitness. And this is back in the day when everybody thought, my goodness, people over 40 shouldn't be running. And Dr. Ken Cooper's clinic, well, he's amassed invaluable data on what exercise and healthy diet does for lowering dramatically things like Alzheimer's and extending life dramatically. His patients live nine years longer than ordinary Americans. And Cooper manages to do all of this through prevention. And by the way, nowhere in the healthcare system is anybody rewarded for prevention. That was something else 
I started to learn about. You get sick, there's a doctor, he gets paid. The hospital gets paid. You have a heart attack, a heart surgeon gets paid. But who pays anybody in this system to stay healthy? So that too was something I was about to explore. So this is a journey about so many things. My own, not bout with being overweight, because it's never been a fight. I've just surrendered. Um, and, and again, my desire to be living healthier and living healthier for my kids. And let's face it, I probably would want to be able to walk up those stairs and not be sweating and losing my breath. So this is what brings me to Dallas. This is what brings me to Dr. Ken Cooper. And when we come back, we're going to hear about just what happened on my flight out to Dallas. This was a year and a half in the making, a 10-year abstention from exercise, a 10-year abstention from even thinking about eating properly, and now having to get back on track, trying to get that part of my life together, so many other parts of my life together. This part, well, I didn't even think it was coming apart until that day walking up the stairs. And so when we come back, you'll hear about my trip to the Cooper Clinic. And then as we go on over the weeks and months, my trip back to the Cooper Clinic and then back again, because this is going to be a year-long odyssey into seeing how I drop that weight I need to drop. But more important, how I can be that healthy uh, parent who's around for his daughter when she decides to get married, when she decides to have those kids. All that and more. My story, my health story, here on Our American Stories. Better Health at Lower Cost is brought to you by our friends at Stetson Family Office in New York, who manage the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which is focused on improving health outcomes and lowering healthcare costs in the U.S. and around the world. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with our Better Health at Lower Cost series. I'm the subject of the first story. Let's pick up where I left off. And so there I was. It was the day before, the day before, heading off on a plane to Dallas to see whether I was healthy or not. And I pretty much knew the answer. I wasn't. Worse, I was wondering what I had. I'm, you know, was there something wrong with my heart? Was that why I couldn't make it up the stairs? Did I have cancer? I'd never checked. You know, now when you do these things, you find out answers. And this is, I think, why a lot of guys don't go. They don't want to know the answer. And that's not exactly a responsible thing to do when you have kids. And I think it was my own kid who jostled me into a sense of responsibility. Go figure. Your own 13-year-old can sometimes make a man at it. And again, I was going to be finding out all kinds of things about my body. Full CAT scan, I'm going to find out if I have cancer. I'm going to get a full workout on my heart, and I mean as tough one as you can get to find out whether my heart and cardiovascular are worthy, and I, I, I sort of knew they weren't. We're going to do blood work, and they're going to find out everything from my triglycerides, and, well, do I have diabetes? I have no idea. I've been eating sugar like a kid at Halloween for the last, well, 50 years. And of course, that four Coca-Cola a day habit, that ice cold Coke, 
I knew that was going to have to go, and I was just wondering, again, diabetes, it's a scourge and it's a killer. And was that why my feet were numb two weeks ago? I'm just starting to think about these things I never thought about before. And so I arrive at the Cooper Clinic the day before my big day. The campus, by the way, is in North Dallas. It's beautiful. And so in I go to meet Dr. Cooper, who's going to give me a little summary of what I'm about to go through and a little bit of background on this remarkable place. And by the way, what a remarkable man. They want to welcome you to the Cooper Clinic for the most important examination of your life. We say this is the best health insurance and life insurance you can buy. Come to the Cooper Clinic. We've been in existence now for 47 years. Over 145,000 patients come to this clinic, and many have come back on multiple occasions. And by the way, you're hearing from him because, well, the Cooper Clinic is part of the story. Ken Cooper is a part of this story, and you'll see as we go on in this story that it shifts between my story and Ken's remarkable story from working on NASA astronauts to ultimately being a pioneer in this country on preventive medicine. And here I was, this was my doctor. It would be like going to see Ralph Lauren to get a Ralph Lauren suit, and he's cutting it for you and fitting it for you and giving you advice about the suits. And lucky me, I get to be the patient of this great man at this great clinic. 47 years he's been doing it, 145,000 patients. And he's right, it's the best health insurance and life insurance you can buy. And you know, one of the things I kept bumping into in my research and what Cooper kept saying over and over again in videos I would bump into, our system, well, there's $100,000 waiting for a heart surgery. There's all kinds of money waiting for you once you get cancer. But there are ways to prevent these things. They're not necessarily all cheap, especially monitoring it, but there's nothing in the system that rewards prevention. There are all kinds of things in the system that reward the doctors, the hospitals, and everybody else. That's another part of this journey, not just my life and my health, but a talk and a look into the United States healthcare system itself. But back to the story. I like to uh, spend time with the patients. Our physicians see only two to three patients a day. We spend and try to spend at least an hour and a half one-on-one with the patients, plus a debriefing all the things that occur throughout the day. Of course, the exam uh, takes about, uh, about eight hours, starts at about seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, usually finished by three o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon for your first exam. And then Dr. Cooper tells me one statistic which I thought was just worth bearing and is, I think, the one I'd heard that drew me to him, not that he'd taken care of presidents of the United States, because he had, not because he's the, the man who started modern-day aerobics, which he did. It was this number, and it's very powerful, and here's Dr. Cooper talking about that. We're finding that uh, over 96,000 patients we're following have been with us for 20 years or longer. It appears that our men are living 87.5 years on the average, women 90.5, which is 10 years longer than the national average. So going against the grain and proving that preventive medicine is the most important medicine of the future. That's an amazing number, 10 more years of life. And as you'll learn as we go on with Dr. Cooper, it's just a better quality of life. Lower rates of Alzheimer's, lower rates of cancers. And by the way, when folks under Dr. Cooper's tutelage, and that is... Well, living well, living right, uh, exercising all the way through. I'm talking about into the 80s, into the 90s. He was telling me the story of two of his patients who were in their mid and late 90s who were running mini marathons. Well, when they die, they're dying faster. So they're living longer. And when they die, they're not dying these slow, torturous deaths. They're just dying fast. 
So live longer, die faster. But back to my story. The next morning, it's back to the Cooper Clinic, where I'm greeted by a beautiful young lady named Lauren as my day of testing is about to begin. Mr. Habib, welcome to the Cooper Clinic. Oh, thank you so much. My name's Lauren. I'm going to get you checked in today. I had a few doctors. Dr. Ken Cooper was the lead doctor. These other doctors, well, they were just taking care of what they had to take care of. The blood work and the urine samples came first. And then it was off to a serious CAT scan, which, boy, this one got me nervous. It wasn't one of those CAT scans where you slide in like, a, like I was going into a sarcophagus. Uh, no, it was one of these new modern ones that sort of slides over and around you. And it was an entire body CAT scan. And the gentleman told me and walked me through exactly what was about to happen with that scan. Hi, I'm Joe. Good to meet you. I'm going to take you back for your CT scan. We're going to take you in, do a scan of your chest, your abdomen, and your heart. Get some nice images of your heart and all your major organs. Take us about five minutes to do the scan. You'll slide in and out of the hoop a few times. We'll check to see if there's any calcium in your heart and your coronary arteries and uh, get a calcium score. Then it was off to vision and dermatology and the check of my skin for skin cancer. And, and then a general checkup with Dr. Cooper, which included the dreaded part of the exam that no man looks forward to, the old, well, let's just say Dr. Jellyfingers. And no one looks forward to it and. While he was administering this part of the exam, I was just groaning, and Dr. Cooper says to me, you think it's fun for me? And he was a, just a perfect gentleman and knew how to walk a man through this, 86 years old. It wasn't his first rodeo. He has thousands of customers he does this for, thousands of patients. He's kept alive longer and kept healthy longer, and it's a remarkable story about Dr. Cooper and the Cooper Clinic that we're going to get into down the road. But right now, it's my own personal health that I cared about, not the world's, and my own little girl who I wanted to be around for, for her wedding and for the rest of her life. And so all the tests were done, except the last one, which was the one I dreaded the most, and the one I'd read about, Dr. Cooper's dreaded stress test. And you get on a treadmill, and you're hooked up, and it's, the EKG is going around, and you're, you've got another doctor sitting by, too, because... They're really going to push you, and they're going to push you hard. And ultimately, the level kept increasing, the level of difficulty. In other words, the thing just kept rising, as if you were climbing up a steeper and steeper hill, and you had to keep jogging at the same pace for as long as you could. You were told clearly what the levels were. If you gave up at X minutes, or you were in bad shape. So you knew, as you were jogging, where you stood in the pantheon of wellness for people your age. And boy, I was getting tired fast. I was not where I wanted to be, not even close. But it was good. For the first time in a long time, I felt like I was accountable to somebody and to something for my health. And so this test, well, it's, it's a world-famously tough test in that Dr. Cooper wants to put the heart through it, through the ringer, so we can learn about what that heart is capable of. And uh, you learn the most about anything under stress. And so we got my heart rate up to 169, walking up what felt like a mountain, and my, my blood pressure to 240 over 94. But I made it, and I knew, I knew that I was about to learn a lot about my heart health, sitting next to Dr. Cooper and his team. And so I sat down, and I looked at Dr. Cooper, and I said, so am I going to die, Doc? 
I mean, he's probably heard that a thousand times. And I was doing it to ease, I don't know, my tension, I guess, because he wasn't nervous. Because he had taken a look at everything and there was no cancer. My arteries were clean. uh, No diabetes. Some of the things I worried about, I was getting tired in the middle of the day. Well, I had a vitamin D deficiency. He said, look, you got a clean bill of health, but you got to drop 30 pounds. I'm going to send you over to the nutritionist. And then I'm going to send you over to my exercise guy. And we're going to put you on a program. And you're going to have to drop those pounds. And not because I want to make you you more handsome. um, But because you're just going to live a better life with about 20 to 25 pounds off you. 30 would probably be ideal. And uh, you just got to eat better. That's it. So I had done nothing to deserve these results. As I told you, I sat around and ate for the last 10 years, and I've been eating poorly, well, as long as I can remember, pretty much. Well, actually, I thought I was eating pretty good, but it turns out, just not for my health. And so, we're going to continue with this story, and stick with me, see if I lose this 30 pounds, because I'm going to have to go back to the Cooper Clinic and see Dr. Cooper in six months, and he's going to put me back on that treadmill, and he's going to weigh me, and he's going to test me, and I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life, twice a year, because, well, I need it to break the habit. This is Lee Habib, my personal journey, my life story as it relates to my health. So many of yours, too, I'm sure. And in a way, Dr. Cooper's story, too. And his quest to give us all longer health and better health and better lives and longer lives. And get this, at a lot lower cost. My story, the Cooper Clinic story, here on Our American Stories.